Hello and welcome to a new episode of Chipping Away, where your host Akash Chandurga takes you on journeys of South Asia, its history, archaeology, art, and everything in between. As you recall, we were in conversation with Scott about queer theory and archaeology. Let us continue the conversation further, dig a little deeper, and see how the field of archaeology opens up various theoretical constructs in its practical applications. I was just wondering if we can think critically about how this discussion might inform us or reflect some of our notions of gender-specific tasks. And I also wonder if we can reflect on how it expresses in gender-specific roles, this acknowledgement or sort of categorization into binary, especially in the past societies. Sometimes the assignment of gender to particular occupation. So here's a good example of that. There is, I mean, one of the sites I studied, they didn't find any weighted looms or anything to that effect within the fortification. So the assumption was no women, no children. By saying that, you're assuming it's strictly a male-dominated space. So within that male-dominated space, whatever activities you do find are strictly male-dominated activities. This is what becomes the problem of just binary analysis, right? So even with gender, it is binary. It's masculine and feminine. It's really no in-between. Queer allows a little more nuance in terms of examining material culture. Why does a loom weight have to do with strictly women or children? Men probably could do that too. Why does a sword have to be strictly a man thing? Couldn't women fight and defend themselves? Would they use their swords for other things? Was a sword ceremonial? Was it ever used? Was it strictly a symbolic gesture from maybe one tribe to another tribe? Those kinds of things, when we assign gender to material culture, become problematic. Jewelry, for example, when you get like little beads and glass jewelry and bracelets, and we go, oh, that's the woman's artifact. It's female. It's feminine. Why? Right? Like, why does that have to be feminine? Now, it's not to say that everything has to be male, too. It's the baggage that comes along with those labels, right? And then how it changes the discourse around that particular site and who's interacting with the structures around that. So then if you're finding, say, particular pieces of items within a room and then you're gendering that room, like a kitchen area, well, it doesn't make any sense. Then you're strictly saying that only certain people went into these areas. The other end of that is when men mostly went off to war and fight, women and children did travel with their soldiers in the Byzantine Empire. But when men did go off to these battles and fight, what were the women doing at the house? They weren't strictly in the kitchen, like what we would stereotype them as. No, I mean, it's more complex than that, right? And this is the problems of binary analysis and how we gendered artifacts, like gendering spaces as well, like within the structures. And then gendering spaces outside the structures, within the landscape, like who does the plowing? Who goes and gets the cows? We need to bring those you know, sheep in need to eat tonight, right? We need to shear someone. Who does that? Why are we gendering even the landscapes? Queer allows that kind of deconstruction and disruption of those areas. And this is not something just limited to the last 2,000, 4,000 years, but also goes back into Paleolithic times. So for example, rock art, at least rock art of Western Europe, studies from a long time have showed that the individuals who made rock art were most probably women and children. However, when we're representing them in illustrations or in academia, do you always show a male figure who's standing with a light painting the walls? So when your science itself is telling you that it's 
actually women and children who are making the art but how we are conveying the science to the larger public we ourselves are falling at that hurdle good way to think was what children are doing during, during this period we never consider children and we never consider the roles of male children and female children really and what they're doing around the home and let's face it if a child is becoming emperor at the age of 14 running a whole empire then i'm sure children at home are doing things they're not just sitting at home playing paleolithic nintendo or whatever you want to call it right like you know when we start putting these agents into our analysis it really changes the structure of how you approach whatever site you're going to whether it's in east asia in the middle east western world indigenous territories it really changes it because these people are all active participants in a social structure and they have roles and they have things that they are meant to be doing at the same time things that they're not meant to be doing which they're deviating from and it changes space and how people perceive space and how they perceive and interact with these boundaries and even their own social organization is something we assume would probably be from the modern times we are the ones saying okay this probably of parents and children and grandparents but maybe their social organization like you said previously was completely different we don't know their social context we are just building and interpreting it from what we know to hold true in our modern times There's a good example in a, a Syriac source actually about when the Sasanian king of kings I think it was uh, Shapur I invaded into Anatolia they take prisoners men women and children right one of these women that were taking would actually become the bride of another Sasanian king after Shapur I think that's interesting because she has a very defined agency her name is Candida but it's meant through a Syriac context because they're using her as a martyr and it's really fascinating it doesn't say when she was taken like was she taken as a child because she was taken by Shapur then obviously she was raised within the uh, kingdom for a little while before she was married off or maybe she was married off right away or this is your future wife right and and then eventually when they got married she was probably older but she could have been still 14 and so we think of children in a certain way in terms of age and their roles within those ages when children back then could have been like you know you're going to marry this person and she is 7 and he's 20 right now and then when you become of age you will be his bride it's fascinating but yet when we read these sources do we immediately assume more of an adult kind of characteristic to this person you know i don't think the text ever said anything about her age or even remotely insinuates anything about her age I and mean, she could have been 13 for all i know in this text why are we assuming within your own mental head she's probably about 20 something years old we have this kind of standard image of it and that's i think the biases of leaving children out and again i think we default to the imagery of 15 to 20 year olds who are in between whether you categorize them as children or adults it'd be fantastic if we found a tablet that was like this is the history of sumerian children and you know just like that'd be amazing just to see what they actually called them and what their roles in society were and all that kind of stuff no but even us thinking that you know childhood as a concept existed in the past is probably also applying things from the present to the past i mean in paleolithic times agreed yes for the first couple of years you were dependent on whoever you're around with but after that you probably would have to somewhat fend for yourself oh yeah definitely yeah i would think so i think that goes right up into the medieval period up until modern world i mean i think that's very true because 
in terms of survival, you need everybody participating in the family structure. If you insert class into that structure, then do the elites have a different perception of what childhood should be comparatively to poorer communities, right? So a chimney sweep is probably from the lower echelons of society. Are you going to see a chimney sweep from an elite family come down? Probably not. They're going to a different form of structure in terms of their education and what they're meant to do in society. So it'd be very interesting to see if there's any kind of studies about that, I think, you know, and the paradoxes between elite concepts of childhood comparatively to lower class concepts of childhood and what that meant. And did those exist in the ancient world? And again, I'm defaulting to the example from South Asia. There are some clear indications that the Varna system in South Asia, according to the traditional in the society might have had some of these concepts in play because the Varna system dictates that there is a student stage for only two upper classes of the society, the Brahmins and the Kshatriyas, while the other two, Vaishyas and the Dalits, were not necessarily assigned into the student stage from age 0 to 25. But again, some of the stories from Ramayana and Mahabharata sort of narrate some characters on the sidelines the main character is probably playing Vitidandu, which is traditional form of cricket-ish game. And then the ball lands in a nearby hut where they see a small child working away or sweeping or attending to somebody. So these references on the sideline kind of suggest that there was a disconnect between what childhood looked like for different classes. But again, this is a vast generalization just based on a few mythological stories, but that might be a reflection of how some things might have played out. It's fascinating when you start putting these ideas out there, because I don't know how much of this stuff is explored in any historical analysis, really. And it's fascinating because I was like, I never would have thought of it. It's quite amazing when you start doing it, because then it changes all the dynamics of everything. But the histories, when you start looking into the past, is they're not recorded. So we don't think about them. They're obviously still there. So how does it change the narrative? And as historians and archaeologists, should we be assuming certain roles of these children in the narrative of a site or a historical event or whatever? And if we do, is that really history or are we just making fiction? And if we're not doing it, what does that gap of knowledge do in terms of our analysis? Does it change it in a complete direction that really is not accurate, but is the only direction we can go because that's all the evidence we have? It's so, again, go home, bottle of wine, cry. <laughs> <laughs> no, it is, it is just fascinating to pick at these nuances that we generally take for granted. And how we can actually combine literature, material culture, and even looking at landscape to look at the rootedness of identities and even our imposition of binaries and non-binaries. Looking at landscapes and how we've traditionally done work, like here's the example of binary, archaeological site, landscape. So where's the borders? And one of these things about in terms of querying archaeology or using queer to understand methods in archaeology, it's not about understanding the past in the sense of understanding how we approach archaeological space is that queer allows you to go, well, where's the boundaries here? We have an archaeological space. Doesn't mean that's the settlement boundaries. You're excavating an area. How do the people identify the settlement and what do they perceive as boundaries of the settlement comparatively to, okay, we're going to create an archaeological space. It has its boundaries. We only can do so much. 
and we can only interpret so much within this space, it fragments the way people identify space. You know, someone might perceive a mountain off in the distance as part of their territory, a part of their settlement, part of their landscape, and identify it in a certain way. And there's a symbolic meaning that it could be a mountain god looking down on them. Who knows, right? Like, yet with archaeological stuff, you have excavation of an area, and then you have landscape archaeology, which either does LIDAR, any of that kind of survey work, or it's kind of just looking at the surface scatter and going, okay, what's on the surface scatter? And then we're just going to assess the surface scatter and look at it this way, or we're going to look at environmental conditions. But it creates a binary of the site and the landscape, which is not representational of actually what's going on in that area in that particular period of time. That's another way that if we're keeping on the theme of queer, that queer disrupts heteronormative ways of looking at things. So in terms of my stuff, taking a digital approach to analyzing landscapes and legacy data and reinterpreting that legacy data and going, okay, well, if you're saying this is a fortification, let's reassess it to the landscape, to the settlement, to everything else. Let's form connections through computational ways of going, okay, well, if we can plot road connections and plot this and plot that, it might bring new evidence to light about the functionality of that particular settlement. What was going on there? Was it really a military outpost or was it an outpost within a settlement? And what was that settlement doing? Was it a tax haven? Was it a post station, a waypoint for travelers that had a you know a little hotel, something to that effect, right? And it can completely change things. So that's what I'm hoping to do with this particular project with Crane is kind of use various ways of computational analysis to reassess the logistics of travel, the networks of travel, what those networks do in terms of creating identity, how those identities are applied to settlements, do identities change over the time of the settlement, right? Maybe it started off as a small outpost, but then it grew into a bigger settlement. And then no one looks at that as an outpost. It's more of a community. What is involved in community, what that entails. So I'm hoping that that's some of the stuff you can address in that. Yeah. And I quite appreciate the sort of anthropogenic axis of looking at it where anthropogenic activity might add another layer of connecting the archaeological material, which is just material for material's sake, and the landscape, and how these things have been interacting, and possibly how the meanings changed over time. Yeah, we have to consider like the emotive qualities of landscape and how that impresses on people's belief systems. If there's a dry season, why is that dry season happening? And you know, how do people interact with landscape when it comes to that stuff? One thing kind of popped in my head a little while ago when I was looking into this was the emotive qualities of road construction. Why do they want to build a road in a particular area? Is it strictly logistic, like if military purposes, economic purposes, which is generally how it's been examined. You know, the Roman road system was very well known and it was good. I mean, it's better than most of the roads that we have today. But what are the emotive qualities behind that too for people when they travel on a road? You know, when they go through landscape of a road, right? Like when they're passing through a certain pass, okay, beware of this mythical thing or the spirits of this or whatever, you know, and be afraid that they might come get you here or you're protected within this area because it's a community. You don't have to worry about people going through this region. But when you go through this region, you better worry about those Assyrians because, man, they're not going to be happy that you're coming through here. 
And the other component is when roads change and they fluctuate directions, which they do because they repave them or they change directions for either efficiency, least cost analysis, basically, you know, like this is a way better route to take. Or is it a better route to take because we avoid this particular region? It might be a longer route, but it might be a better route, right? And so there's all these different kind of motive qualities that I want to explore. I think the computational stuff will help in terms of plotting different ways of looking at road systems in landscapes, which are connecting communities together. I also think technology would play a role in changing of roads, where you had a hill and you were going around it, but now you have the technology of going through the hill. Oh, yeah, definitely. Yeah. The other thing would be interesting because if they're building a road, say, over 2000 years, is how the landscape around those roads have changed. Therefore, if we're seeing modern landscapes, and this could be applied anywhere in the world, when you look at modern landscapes, is that really the landscape that the people perceive back in the period? Depending on how climate shifts and things like that. Therefore, we're going, okay, well, this road's through here. This landscape looks like this. And, you know, you're trying to interpret how they would perceive that. But you're like, wait a minute, is that actually the landscape? Especially if you're building upon roads for, you know, how much of that road kind of swayed back and forth over the landscape, what's been taken out, what hasn't, what dried up and washed away. Mud pathways would definitely shift more based on the traffic of that road than a cobble road would. Right. Because I guess in terms of the landscape, you know, with tree growth and other kind of plant growth if a road's not traveled much and this is the same in, in roman landscapes is that if roads not travel much the growth would come in on that road right and it has to be cleared out if it's not travel much you're gonna have to change it a bit you might not stick to it you might see the path but you know not stick to it you might change it a bit and so that kind of you have to perceive the road in a way that it's like a living thing right like it's kind of moving back and forth and like snake-like in a way right if i may add another point to the discussion on roads the emotive aspect, especially through political power and emotions. So sometimes when a new king comes to power and constructs a palace, there was a tendency of connecting all the major roadways leading to that palace or from the palace. And we see that in South Asian temple towns quite a bit. And also in some other areas where existent roadways were moved so that they would fall on the path of where the new king's palace would be constructed. And to some extent, some of this is still continued in current political scenario where a certain political leader's native town or village has to be on the map and connected to the main highway. And the highway would then be constructed so as that town would be connected. Again, that gives rise to how sentimentalities and emotive aspect connects with these so-called infrastructural changes. Yeah, and having a community's identity attached to a particular infrastructure project saying, you know, this is an honor that we have to build for this particular king or queen or whoever, right? Those things are there for sure. Circling back to the whole identity thing is like, so when soldiers coming through or even soldiers stationed in settlements, this is the problem you were asking me about Byzantine stuff and why I really dislike the label because we just go, well, that's a Byzantine soldier. It's a Byzantine site. It's a Byzantine this. And it has no bearing on the identity of the person there or the people there or the community there. Uh, there's population transfers and you have mixed ethnic groups vying for whatever resources or or even cohabitating in peaceful manners but yet their identities are so complex and then using this blanket term byzantine it erases all that 
And it's an eraser that allows for the Orientalist tropes to come in, the colonial tropes to come in and go, this is what the society is kind of like, you know, uh, they're a little weird and we don't really care about them. They're not really Roman. I mean, classical Roman is Augustus and blah, 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 right? So this is part of this whole identity, even with queer theory, to try to bring that back into the fold here as well, is meant to disrupt all this stuff. So queer is not meant to just tell you the past. It's meant to disrupt traditional narratives, like I've said before. And so Byzantine is one of these things that I want to disrupt because it just doesn't apply to identities of people and communities, especially in larger cities. And Thessalonica is a great example in terms of movement of populations where it's documented that during harvest season, populations spread out of the city, they go out and collect their harvests, they're interacting with other regions, and then they all come back in. But it's a very large city. So what is the demographics of that city? We're just saying that's Byzantine Thessaloniki. No, we can't. It might be ruled by a particular emperor and it might be ruled by a particular imperial structure. It doesn't mean that's how those people identified. Right. And it's so it's very complex and in the sense of how we stigmatize certain areas with this label. And again, it's just part of what I think people might argue with me and might disagree with me on this. But I think queer allows whether you're actually really applying the theoretical end of things to it or just going, I want to apply queer theory to a particular area. But it just forces you as an individual to think differently. And that's what I like about it. When we had my um, MA defense they were like, well, we could see how you're drawing on queer, but we could have probably done this without it, right? We could probably got some of these. And I go, but I used it to get to this point. It allowed me to think differently. And that was, to me, the purpose of it. It's disruptive. And if we could have used it, with, got to this point without it, then why wasn't it done? So some of these kind of conclusions were like, well, we don't really need that theory to do that. That's fine. It's not meant to identify a specific historical moment or fact. It's meant to disrupt how we approach it to bring out other narratives out of that moment, right? That's very well paraphrased. And I think that's a wonderful way to end our talk. Thank you, Scott, for a wonderful discussion. Yeah, no problem. Thank you for having me. Really, it was fun. It was fun for us too. Thank you. Thank you, Scott. This really opened my mind to think how we can think creatively about the past, using or employing some of the theoretical constructs that we as humanity have come to understand. So we'll see you again in the next episode. Till then, keep chipping away. So we'll meet soon and until then, keep chipping away. Bye-bye. Chipping Away is available on all major streaming websites such as Spotify, Apple and Google Podcasts and so on. So go ahead, subscribe wherever you feel comfortable or you can just log in to Buzzsprout and check out Chipping Away. We have a new episode coming up every fortnight, that is after every 15 days, so twice a month. Each episode comes with a new theme new points for discussion, and something for us to take back and ponder on. So join us in our journey of understanding our collective past better and to question the existing and new theories and models that we encounter every so often. And don't forget to follow us on Twitter and Instagram at chipinawayind and drop us a line about your comments, inputs, 
and what you would like to hear from us at chipinawayind at gmail.com. In this current environment of chaos, uncertainty, and a lot of tension that surrounds us with the pandemic, impending lockdown, and other restrictions, let Chip in a Way be your little moment of recluse from the world around you. Help us make this little movement a little more better by reading the blog posts that go with our podcasts and other discussions online and offline. For the blogs, you can check out www.klmighty.com that is K-A-L-E-M-I-G-H-T-Y dot com. We have all the links in the description for our podcast and you can check it out online on Google, Spotify and other major streaming sites. So, see you again in a matter of 15 days with a new topic, a new theme and something new to pick your brain with. Till then, keep chipping away, stay safe and take care. Bye-bye.